0: This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome! welcome!
1: We're talking about a bug's life. Woo! 1998. We're almost through the 90s, Rachel. It's kind of hard to believe.
0: When we started out our podcast with <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, I wasn't sure this day would come. We made it through the Renaissance? Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> Though, of course, they keep making new movies, so yeah, it does seem like we might never get to the end.:
1: It does feel that way. I was trying to do the math the other day. <laughs> and I was like, OK, if we do like maybe 12 a year, we often like take a month or two off, like, oh no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's worth it, everyone. Th- thanks for taking the journey with
0: us. <laughs> okay. It's the time <sighs> of our life. we're living it well with, yeah. Bugs Life. Shall I give us a synopsis? Please do. Okay. The movie opens with a sweeping shot of a small island in the middle of a dry riverbed. We move in closer to see ants on the island collecting individual seeds and grain kernels and berries and delivering them to a large pile in an orderly, though tedious, single-file line. (laughs) We meet Princess Atta, Daughter of the Queen Ant, and Princess Atta expresses her anxiety about the upcoming visit from the grasshoppers, who come each year to the island to collect the offering of surplus food. The scene is subtly interrupted by Flick, a misfit ant who has invented a machine to harvest grain more efficiently. Princess Atta and the other ants in positions of leadership dismiss his invention and admonish him to adhere to these long-standing ways of doing things. In the panic preceding the grasshopper's arrival, Flick inadvertently knocks over the stone with the offering, and the pile of food falls into a puddle.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. The way I audibly yelled no (laughs) and, like, cringed. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, Flick, no! Like, I've seen this movie before, but not enough to, I guess, remember it point for point, and, like, it really hurt (laughs) to see that happen. I have to
0: say, the offering is on a wobbly pile of stones (laughs) right next to the edge of a Mm -hmm. cliff. So, truly, what did they expect to happen?
1: Yeah, and, like, spoiler alert, but, like, when they start collecting food again later, and they show the offering stone. The first thing Paul said was like, "Why haven't? Why they're doing it the exact same way? <laughs> why haven't they changed their system? Why didn't they move it? Just you know, a little bit, a little bit closer away from yeah. the edge. Just one flat rock on the ground, maybe, right? Be better not right. on top of little tiny imbalanced rocks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then it wouldn't be such religious iconography of the altar with the offering. That's very true. So you know." Needs must. Okay, so the food is gone and gone. Ho- <laughs> gone. <laughs> in case you didn't, in case it wasn't God, clear. The food is God, gone, everyone. Hopper, the lead grasshopper, threatens the ants and tells them that they must produce double the amount of offering before the last leaf falls. Even though this is an impossible task, that would preclude the ants from collecting any food they need to sustain themselves through the winter. Flick, always the innovator, is seeking an alternative solution. And he volunteers to leave the ant colony and recruit larger bugs who could then help the ants fight the grasshoppers. Princess Atta agrees, assuming Flick will fail, but eager to ensure that Flick can no longer disrupt their food collection process. So Flick then travels to the big city, which is located outside a mobile home in an apparently rural area, and encounters a group of circus performers whom he mistakes for warriors when they're engaged in a bar fight. Believing Flick to be a talent scout in search of entertainment for his community, the circus performers agree to follow Flick back to the colony. So classic case of mistaken identity. Classic. (laughs) When the circus bugs realize the misunderstanding that's taken place, they begin to leave, but their exit is interrupted when a bird swoops in and attempts to eat Princess Dot, younger sister of Princess Ada. The circus bugs improvise an impressive rescue effort and receive accolades from the ants. Relishing the admiration they've received, the circus bugs agree to remain at the colony and maintain the ruse that they are warriors. Flick also wants this because he doesn't want to admit that he's made yet another mistake that could endanger his colony. Inspired by this close encounter with a bird, Flick devises a plan to build a mechanical bird that will frighten the grasshoppers away when they return to collect the offering. Meanwhile, the grasshoppers are vacationing in Mexico. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Where else? And several of them suggest they don't bother returning to the ant colony because they don't actually need the food from the offering. Hopper quashes this idea, saying... Those puny little ants outnumber us 100 to 1, and if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. Mm -hmm. The ants have finished preparing for the grasshopper's arrival and are enjoying a relaxing celebration when the circus caravan arrives and exposes the true identities of the circus bugs, Devastated to learn of Flick's betrayal, Princess Ada banishes Flick from the colony. When the last leaf falls and the grasshoppers arrive, the offering the ants have scrambled to collect is insufficient, and Hopper instigates a raid on the colony and threatens to kill the queen. Ah. Princess Dot manages to escape and find the circus caravan, convincing Flick to return and implement his original plan of using the mechanical bird to drive the grasshoppers out of the colony. The circus bugs distract the grasshoppers with a performance, while (laughs) Flick and the ants prepare the bird. Several of the grasshoppers disperse in fear, but when the bird accidentally catches fire, Mm -hmm. Hopper realizes the bird was a trick and confronts Flick. After Flick delivers an inspiring speech, the ants realize their collective power and force the grasshoppers from their island. Hopper makes one final attempt to kidnap Flick, but Princess Atta rescues him before Hopper is eaten by an actual bird. The following spring, the ants bid the circus bugs farewell and use Flick's harvesting machine to collect grain as Princess (laughs) Atta is crowned queen.
1: The end. Yay. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. I love that bird, man. The mechanical bird is so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. It's very Have impressive. you
0: seen Chicken Run? Oh, of course I've seen Chicken Run. <laughs> of course. It's not a Disney property, to be clear. It's no. DreamWorks, I believe. Yeah. Though, Claymation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of similarities in terms of collective organizing, and the use of a mechanical bird.
1: Yeah, true. Huh, that's interesting, given a certain uh, feud we might talk about during this movie Mm, between DreamWorks and Pixar.
0: Interesting.
1: (laughs) All right,
0: let's get into it. So tell me how you felt about this film, how often you watched it growing up, and what your experience was like now.
1: Yeah. Yeah definitely saw it when i was a kid the uh, like people say a bug's life and like positive associations okay but don't have like a strong relationship with it really heimlich is the only thing that sort of <laughs> stood out in my memory when i reflected on this film and tell us who heimlich is because in my synopsis i didn't
0: highlight True. the individual circus bugs
1: yes heimlich is a caterpillar who's a clown in the circus mhm and is the main form of comedic relief throughout right. the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Heimlich has a lot of great lines, very memorable, but like, yeah, you know, it was fine. And then rewatching it now, meh. <laughs> Plot isn't, isn't super exciting. I don't find Flick. Compelling, really. Like no. I I can sympathize enough to be on his side. Mm-hmm. The grasshoppers mainly are terrifying and I would do anything to <laughs> stop them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so frightening, I think. Hopper and like the shots of the grasshoppers are, and Thumper, of course, mm-hmm. who is another grasshopper who we will talk about later. Mm-hmm. I think the terror there is something I remembered from being little and still resonated with me now. Okay. But overall, it's fine. I didn't find it very exciting. All right. How do you feel? Almost the inverse
0: of <gasps> how you felt. Really? So, I have, of course, seen A Bug's Life. I don't know if I should say "of course" because we are getting closer to the era in which I will have never yeah. seen any of these films before. Get old. I'm getting so <laughs> I'm so old, I'm so old. But this was still prime viewing time for me. I know you mentioned we'll talk about the feud between DreamWorks and Pixar. DreamWorks released the movie Ants mm-hmm. very close in time. And I actually have a very distinct memory of seeing ants in oh, theaters huh. and not loving it. And so I think my memory of ants is a bit conflated with any memory I have of a bug's life. So I was like, eh, "I we have to cover this. It's next chronologically, but like bored, <laughs> not looking forward to it. Uh-huh. Bugs, who cares? I actually kind of hate bugs. So, went into it with very low expectations. And then realized that this movie is a movie about class revolution. (laughs) And I was all in. No way. Wow. I loved it. There are, of course, still problematic elements. I agree. I kind of find Flick annoying, So as a protagonist, I didn't relate to him particularly strongly. I didn't... Actually, I don't find that I related to many, if any, of the characters particularly strongly. But Mm. the overall message of the film, I think, is a really positive one about the power of collective organizing. And (laughs) I do not understand how Pixar made this movie... (laughs) So, like, especially since, if you remember from our Toy Story episode, Pixar had an initial public offering that was really successful. Pixar itself is a capitalist entity that is generating a lot of money for some billionaires in the United States. And so, what, it, what, how, <laughs> how did this happen?
1: I, I... Couldn't get a lot of concrete info on that because I think there's a lot of play nice in public kind of sure, vibes. Of course. But it definitely felt like there was that. Pixar still feeling like the new, the young studio that's like trying to do its thing, and Disney is forcing it into its mold in some ways. They had a lot more freedom with A Bug's Life than they did with Toy Story. Mm. But like when they started making the movie, they were just coming off of Toy Story and they were like, look at us, we did it. We rose up against the big bad and used their money to do what we wanted. And I think that's some of the thematic inspiration. Okay, yeah, that's the
0: spirit that was imbued into the film. That makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. But wow, I am I am shocked so shocked that you loved this like I get that the themes would resonate with you mm-hmm. but I'm very surprised that I don't like I don't think the writing is super great there's a <laughs> lot of characters for this like story to go around with I mm-hmm. wow it does not feel like I think the other movies that you've loved that we've covered well
0: Princess Ada leaves a lot to be desired yes. in terms of a princess character <laughs> She's a little bit of a girl boss and not in a good way. Yeah. So, yes, I can see that. I do think there are a lot of moments that are very funny, good one-liners. There's so many
1: puns. You love puns. That's what it is, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you should have anticipated that. I love a pun. Um, Yeah, and I think, like you said, the themes resonate.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm really glad cuz
0: I thought you yeah. were just going to be like, "I hate this." <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. As I am want to do. That's, that's fair. So, I can tell us a little bit about the background of the story. There's not a whole lot to share. According to Wikipedia, the film was loosely inspired by one of Aesop's fables. For those who may not be familiar, Aesop was probably someone who actually existed, but there are a lot of fables that are attributed to him that may not have actually been written by him. He is a figure in ancient Greece, and this particular fable that inspired a bug's life is called The Ant and the Grasshopper, or sometimes called The Grasshopper and the Ant. It is the story of ants who are working tirelessly to generate the food that they need to sustain them during the winter and the grasshoppers who are so lazy they are dancing and making music all through the summer (laughs) the arts terrible (laughs) (laughs) hate the arts they then go to the ants and ask for food and the ants are like nah sucks for you let your music sustain you through <laughs> And the moral is, ostensibly, that there is a time for work and a time for play. Mm. And both are important, which maybe that's true, but it just kind
1: of seems like the ants are pretty cold and heartless. Yeah. I don't really know that they play very much anyway. Seems just work. Just work right. and work and work until you die. But you get to eat. <laughs> Eating is good. <laughs> it's good. It's good to eat. Yeah.
0: Since that was the source material, I'm very pleased with the direction that Pixar decided to take that in. Yeah. Well, you want to hear about the history? I'm so pumped. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) First, a not pumped portion. Uh, We noted in our Toy Story episode that multiple sexual assault and harassment allegations had been made against John Lasseter. Yeah. If you want more context on that, please go back and listen to that episode. Kevin Spacey has also been accused of sexual assault and needs to be talked about before we get into this so that we have that context. In 2017, actor Anthony Rapp, best known for his role as Mark in the film Rent, was the first to make a public accusation of sexual assault against Spacey, Mm -hmm. having to do with an incident that occurred at Spacey's house in 1986 when Rapp was 14 years old. Hmm. Rap decided to speak out after seeing the bravery of his fellow actors speaking up about the abuses of Harvey Weinstein. and Spacey initially said he did not remember the incident, but he wrote an apology to rap anyway. Hmm. He claims at the urging of his publicist in which Spacey also came out as gay, which hmm. many called an inappropriate deflection. Yep, the case went to trial this past October, by which time Spacey completely denied the allegations, said he regretted his apology note. The jury in that trial ruled that Rapp could not prove his allegations of sexual assault or battery, so the case was dismissed. Mm -hmm. Since 2017, over 30 men have come forward with similar accusations. Spacey was charged in a number of these cases, has another trial set up for June of 2023 for three charges of sexual assault in the UK, and seven more charges have since been authorized in the UK. To which Spacey has pled not guilty, so it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. No resolution yet, but important to follow along and to acknowledge before we talk about his performance as Hopper. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Read a lot of articles that were not fun, mm-hmm. but necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, but a bug's life. <laughs> Just, you know, sexual assault allegations all <laughs> over the place. Let's talk right. about them. Cute little animated movie. Yep. Yeah. Uh, at a lunch in the summer of 1994, John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Pete Docter, and Joe Ranf brainstormed future ideas for films, including things like Monsters Inc., Finding Nemo, and Wall-E. Mm. But for their next project, they were drawn to an idea about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Gotta do bugs because they don't know how to do people yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So truly, they were like, we can't do people. So monsters, fish, robots, bugs. These are things we think our technology can handle. Wow. That's really
0: interesting to think that the technology was what was driving the
1: storytelling and not the other way around. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So bugs like toys felt More achievable, simple shapes, kind of, sort of, still very complicated, but less complicated than a person. Mm -hmm. Stanton and Ranth thought of the Aesop fable, The Ant and the Grasshopper, as you mentioned. Disney had based a 1934 short film on that story Mm. way back when, and more recently had wanted to reboot it in like the 1980s with a project called Army Ants that never got off the ground. Hmm. So Pixar knew these things kind of existed in Disney history and wanted to capitalize on this interest in bugs and ants thought Disney would get behind them for it. Mm. Disney loves bugs. Loves bugs. (laughs) Go for it. Much to Rachel's dismay. (laughs) (laughs) So they started working on this idea in earnest in 1995, pitched it to Disney in July under the title Bugs. Bugs. And Disney approved the basic idea and exercised the option on a second film from their original agreement with Pixar in 1991. Hmm. Several months after the release and success of Toy Story, Steve Jobs had lunch with Michael Eisner and asked for Pixar and Disney to split future profits 50-50 to get Mm -hmm. equal billing on merch and on screen and for Disney to market Pixar films the same way they did their own films. Wow. Jobs was completely convinced that Pixar could become a brand as big as Spielberg and Disney were in Hollywood, and he felt that this deal was the next step on that trajectory, Mm -hmm. and Disney agreed to his proposal. Uh, Why? (laughs) (laughs) From what I saw, it was mostly because they were afraid that Lasseter would go somewhere else with his talents if he was not being reimbursed properly or his studio wasn't Getting what it deserved. Okay. That makes sense. Disney wanted to hold on to Lasseter in particular through Pixar. And so agreeing to
0: Jobs's request was the way to ensure that Lasseter and the Pixar talent would
1: remain intact. hmm And only working with them. And uh, the Pixar staff was less certain about <laughs> their future. So they really felt that the future of the studio was riding on bugs. They'd either prove that computer animation could be successful, as successful as traditional animation, mm-hmm. or they'd be a one-hit wonder. Wow. So, sophomore movie, very important to them. Right. Lasseter assigned Andrew Stanton as his co-director, and Donald McEnery and Bob Shaw wrote the screenplay with Stanton. You may remember McEnry and Shaw were the stand-up comics and Emmy-nominated writers for Seinfeld who worked on Hercules. Getting those funny guys back in on the Pixar side. Stanton wondered why the grasshopper in The Ant and The Grasshopper didn't simply just take the food from the ants because he's a bigger and stronger animal. And that was what led them to their central conflict for Bugs. Mm. The writing team struggled with the fact that their main character which they originally devised as one of the circus bugs, had no stake in the fight between the ants and the grasshoppers and could mm-hmm. just leave at any time. So that's how they came up with Flick being one of the ants asking for help so that he was you know beholden to his family and his people and make sure that they stick around long enough to figure out what happens. <laughs> sure. The voice cast was made up mostly of television sitcom stars at the time. Dave Foley from News Radio, Julia Louis Dreyfus from Seinfeld, Richard Kind from Spin City, David Hyde Pierce from Frasier, and Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond—truly really hitting all of the like top spots, mm-hmm. trying to grab some some funny people, and they are a lot of funny people. But there's so many of them, like I feel like we could have narrowed it down a little bit, but that's fine.
0: <laughs> or given them more comedic material. I'm thinking specifically about Princess Ada. Mm. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is one of the funniest people alive, and that's not a very comedic character. Yeah. She gives a great performance, but
1: we don't get to see her comedic chops at all. Yeah, agreed. Women aren't funny. Women can't be strong and funny. It's weird that they also worked on Meg for Hercules, though, because she's strong mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. funny, but she's a bad guy, and maybe only bad guys can be funny and strong. <laughs> yeah.
0: We can't give women too many character traits because it might confuse them.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let alone the audience. John Ratzenberger voiced P.T. Flea after voicing Ham in Toy Story, beginning his legacy of voicing a character in every Pixar film until Soul. Soul. Heimlich, who we mentioned earlier, the Caterpillar, he was voiced by Joe Ranf, who's head of story at Pixar, because Joe did the original voice for Heimlich for, like, storyboards, and his Hmm. recordings were always, like, cracking everybody up. They always liked them the best, so they just asked him to do Heimlich officially. Hmm. Ranf had also voiced Lenny, the walking binoculars in Toy Story. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Lasseter's top choice for Hopper was Robert De Niro who sure. seems to be Disney and Pixar's white whale. <laughs> <laughs> but he repeatedly turned down the part. Multiple other actors also turned it down, and then it was offered to Kevin Spacey, and he was really excited and signed on right away.
0: I really felt like there were a lot of similarities between Hopper and Hades. Yes, and that makes sense because it's the same writers. But also in the performance, I think I was a little disappointed in Spacey's performance because of that. It felt a little derivative of Hades, oh. which James Wood is just so brilliant with that, that I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I, it, you know, it's a convincing performance, but it didn't feel particularly imaginative or mm. new.
1: Sure. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if because Pixar and Disney were more distant, like a little more separated in people's minds. I wonder if at the time that connection wouldn't have felt as strong. Sure. Yeah. But like both studios wanted Robert De Niro for that part initially. Like you can Mm -hmm. see the similarities there for sure. And when I was doing my research, I saw multiple people on like YouTube comments and stuff mixing up. Spacey and Woods as like the voice actors for those characters. Like someone was like, oh, I love that the same guy does Hopper and Hades. And it's like, oh no, they're different, but I kind of get it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think it's a strong performance. I think it's the strongest voice performance of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's the one who feels like he's acting the most. A lot of the circus bugs are just comedy though. So it's Mm. hard to like, they don't get the depth that Hopper is allowed to get. Mm -hmm. But yes, having watched Hercules so recently, I also felt that similarity for sure. Yeah. All right. So animation time. They made things even more difficult for themselves after doing (laughs) Toy Story. In a retrospective round table, Lasseter and Stanton were kicking themselves for choosing to do an entirely organic world for their second film, a world full of tidy details and varied mm-hmm. textures and no straight lines, <laughs> uh, which is very different from Toy Story, which was mostly inside with plastic and wood furniture and straight line rooms. It was a lot easier for them to create that environment. Sure. They had already done a lot of low perspective work on Toy Story, though. They'd already done like animating single blades of grass. So like they had stuff to build from, but they wanted to capture the beauty of the natural world and capture it from a tiny little ant's perspective. So they made a bug cam, which was a (laughs) mini video camera on Lego wheels, which they rolled around the grassy areas of the Pixar lot to, like, get footage. (laughs) Wow. Lasseter was particularly interested in the transparency of leaves and flower petals and the grass with the sun behind them in this footage and really Mm. wanted to capture that, like, world of stained glass that it felt like he was seeing from the bug cam.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: To achieve that translucent look, Pixar used a process called subsurface scattering developed by Ed Catmull back in the 70s to render more lifelike surfaces. Subsurface scattering is the name of both the technological process and the natural process describing how light passes through or bounces around inside a translucent object before exiting. So it makes translucent, thin, usually areas appear brighter, and less translucent, usually thicker areas appear darker. Hmm. You know how you can see the light, like diffuse light shining through the cartilage of like someone's ear if the sun is like right behind them? Mm-hmm. That's subsurface scattering, that like redness to their cartilage. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Physics. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Pixar used subsurface scattering to great effect to make the plants appear more lifelike in a bug's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. This was the first time subsurface scattering was used in a feature film, but Pixar tested it out in Jerry's Game, which was the short film. Precedes *A Bug's Life* in theaters, but had actually been released the year prior. Mm. And I'm going to talk about Jerry's game in my extras. Ooh, great! So the sheer number of characters also made things really difficult for them. Yeah, there are 400 crowd shots of the ant colony in the film, with the wow. number of ants ranging from 25 to a thousand ants. Oh my gosh! Yeah. That's so many things they had to animate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, of course, like the crowd scenes in Hunchback and Mulan that we've talked about, Bill Reeves, one of A Bug's Life's two supervising technical directors, helped develop a new software at Pixar that allowed eight universal ant designs to be modified in subtle ways, like eye and skin color and height and weight, that sort of stuff, so that no two ants were exactly identical And then they can make like a jumble of ants in one space and then they just like replicate it all over the inside of like the colony. And then they could like pick up individuals and move them around. And then they truly tried to make sure that there were no two exactly identical ants in one scene. Wow, bonkers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then the animators also needed bugs to be (laughs) likable. and Look cute, particularly the ants. Disney usually makes like, the character's eyes bigger or like Mm -hmm. their head bigger to make them cuter, but like that didn't really work with bugs, it just made them Mm -hmm. look more like creepy bugs. (laughs) So they veered away from like natural realism uh, in the name of attractiveness and Mm -hmm. removed the ants' mandibles and made them bipedal with two arms so that they ran Mm -hmm. around like humans rather than creepy crawling like bugs. Mm -hmm. And then they also decided to add an extra pair of arms to the grasshoppers to make them more menacing and definitely not cute. On the note of bug anatomy, though, they did consult with an entomologist and studied footage from his lab of bug movement, including using a bug treadmill (laughs) At the lab. (laughs) So like the millipedes that pull the circus wagon, Mm -hmm. they figured out how the legs move because they watched a millipede on a bug treadmill in this lab. Wow. They had to build a bug treadmill. I think the lab already had one.
0: Well, of course (laughs) it
1: did. Why wouldn't the
0: lab have a bug treadmill? Just
1: laying around. It's good for studying, you know. (laughs) (laughs) On the music side, film score was composed by Randy Newman, and it's one song, The Time of Your Life, was written and performed by Newman, um, and the score won the Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition. Hooray. Hooray. Good job, Randy. It was cool to hear like full score by Randy Newman, too. I was really surprised how nostalgic the music felt for me when I realized like oh. oh I don't have as strong of a connection to this film as I thought but this music is really getting me that was mm. cool it's really nice yeah all right are you ready for the feud with DreamWorks Ooh, I've been waiting for it I'm so ready Pixar and Katzenberg specifically had had disagreements in the past with like financial negotiation and while working on the plot for Toy Story because Katzenberg was still at Disney at the time. Overall, they had a positive relationship. Katzenberg was Pixar's biggest advocate within Disney while they were trying to prove that they could make a feature film, and he saw Lasseter's talent and potential, so they had a a friendly relationship even after Katzenberg left Disney. Okay. In October of 1995, after Katzenberg has left Disney and begun DreamWorks, during post-production on Toy Story... Lasseter and Stanton were in Universal City, where DreamWorks was located, so they dropped in on Katzenberg. Hmm. They chatted about upcoming projects, and Lasseter told Katzenberg about the idea for Bugs in the hope of using him as a sounding board. Oh, wow. Lasseter also thought that if Pixar was able to produce a second success, it would cement computer animation as a viable and respected medium, and he wanted other studios to be like ready to benefit and hop on that bandwagon including Mm -hmm. DreamWorks, to help propel it forward even further, presumably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Lasseter says Katzenberg kept asking him when they were planning to release bugs and later said he should have been wary. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. In early 1996, Lasseter heard the news that DreamWorks was beginning production on a film called Ants. Yeah. DreamWorks had cut a deal with Pacific Data Images, PDI, another computer animation studio that hoped to get into feature films but needed the support of a large production company like the Pixar relationship with Disney. Mm -hmm. DreamWorks agreed to work with PDI for a 40% share of the company and only if the studio committed to deliver ants before bugs came out. Wow. Mm -hmm.
0: So is the implication here that Katzenberg stole the idea or... Is the implication that this is a huge coincidence?
1: The implication is that he stole the idea. But is that the truth, Rachel?
0: Okay. Well, maybe <laughs> we'll find out if I just keep listening.
1: Let's examine more evidence. <laughs> more evidence. Okay. So Lasseter obviously felt betrayed when he heard about ants. He called Katzenberg to ask if it was true Katzenberg said, yes, it is true, but he also claimed that DreamWorks had had the idea for Ants before Lassiter told him about books. Huh. Lassiter didn't believe him and apparently cursed Katzenberg out on the phone. And Lassiter says Katzenberg complained about Disney being, quote, out to get him. So mm-hmm. Lasseter, at that point, kind of realized that Pixar was caught in the middle of the DreamWorks Disney fight. Yep. But did Katzenberg steal the idea? Hmm. Did he? Maybe. According (laughs) to PDI and DreamWorks, Tim Johnson, who's one of the animators at PDI, had had an idea for a story called Bugs Lights Out about robotic insects in a miniature world back in 1991. Okay. Johnson brought this idea to DreamWorks in 1995 in the hopes of making it their first feature film collaboration and learned that DreamWorks had already had an idea for a film called Ants, which was the combination of a pitch from an executive named Nina Jacobson and Disney's army ants idea from the 80s, which Katzenberg Uh-oh. obviously would have known about. Sure, But DreamWorks and PDI didn't cut their deal to combine these ideas and create the ants we know until March of 1996. Hmm. So based on Lassiter's story from the October 1995 meeting with Katzenberg, where he focused on the fact that Katzenberg was really asking about release dates. Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to believe that Katzenberg had already been pitched the various ideas, Mm -hmm. but only officially signed the deal with PDI once he knew about bugs and wanted to compete with it and beat it to the box office. Mm -hmm. So that's where I stand. I don't think he stole the idea, but I do think he used that insider information to set himself up, hopefully for success. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Of course, much of the animation community already knew about bugs before DreamWorks announced ants, mm-hmm. so it like quickly became controversial, and much of the media was siding with Pixar as well, so that kind of skews how this whole thing is viewed as well. Eisner ended up scheduling A Bug's Life mm-hmm. to open the same week as DreamWorks' f- intended first feature film, The Prince of Egypt. Katzenberg then moved the opening of Ants from spring 1999 to October 1998 to beat A Bug's Life to the box office, making the Ants PDI DreamWorks collaboration their first feature film instead of Prince of Egypt like they had wanted. That gave PDI a year and a half to make Ants and Katzenberg apparently gave them, quote, rich financial incentives to do whatever they could do to make sure the film was ready in time. Steve Jobs, absolutely furious about all of this, called up Katzenberg. Katzenberg offered to delay production of Ants if Disney would also move bugs so that it wouldn't compete with Prince of Egypt. Jobs said he couldn't control Disney's choices, called it extortion, Hmm. and then due to production schedules and market strategy, the films ended up being released a month apart from each other. So Ants came out in October of 98, A Bug's Life came out in November of 98, and then Prince of Egypt came out in December of 98. Wow. So media frenzy leading up to the release of two bug movies by two different computer animation companies. Most outlets, as I said, seem to think that A Bug's Life was in the right here and also that it was the superior film, Mm. but it wasn't particularly hurt by Ants. Ants wasn't really hurt by A Bug's Life. Ants kind of benefited from the public feud cuz it got it talked about a lot more than it might have been otherwise and Ants earned 171 million worldwide making it the most successful non-Disney animated film ever at that time okay it would be surpassed by Prince of Egypt though yeah so now you have the definitive history of what happened <laughs> there's wow. no alternative story <laughs> <laughs> This is what I believe for sure.
0: <laughs> wow, great. That's very helpful.
1: So A Bug's Life premiered on November 14th, 1998 at the El Capitan Theater in LA on a budget of $120 million, It grossed $163 million in North America and $363 million worldwide. Mm. That's more than every Disney film since The Lion King. A Bugs Life's domestic total is lower than Toy Story's 190 million, but beat its 350 million worldwide total. So, like, pretty on par with Toy Story overall. Reception by the critics Todd McCarthy of Variety was very complimentary of the cast, particularly Kevin Spacey's performance, and wrote, quote, Lasseter and Pixar broke new technical and aesthetic ground in the animation field with Toy Story, and here they surpass it in both scope and complexity. The landscapes and evocations of plant life are illustrated with colors that are bold and beautiful, but never gaudy. The overall look is crisp, clean, and invariably pretty. End quote. Sure. Peter Stack of the San Francisco Chronicle gave the film four out of five stars. Stating, quote, A Bug's Life is one of the great movies, a triumph of storytelling and character development, and a whole new ballgame for computer animation. Pixar Animation Studios has raised the genre to an astonishing new level. High praise. Yeah. I also included, <laughs> I included this quote from Paul Clinton of CNN because I thought you weren't going to like it. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah. So Clinton wrote, quote, A bug's life is going to be a big hit. If this movie doesn't make you smile, you may not know how. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, joke's on you, Aaron, because I love smiling. <laughs> <laughs> it's back on me.
1: I guess Paul Clinton and Rachel like puns. And Aaron is not as enthused. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, you missed the
0: pun that I just said, which was high praise because the quote was, it took animation to a whole new level. (laughs) Get it?
1: Yeah. Wow. Great job. (laughs) This is who I am. I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But not all was happy and lovely like Rachel. Right. Some people didn't like the film, like Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly and Stephen Hunter of The Washington Post. Oh, what did they have to say? Gleiberman said that the film made him feel dazed. (laughs) And it may be, quote, the single most amazing film I've ever seen that I couldn't fall in love with. Hmm. And like, I think that's probably how I would have felt if I knew more about technological and animation and stuff. (laughs) Okay. yeah. Hunter said, quote, a lot of this is simple showing off that somehow doesn't add up to a brilliant movie. Hmm. They are doing like literally groundbreaking stuff, but okay, (laughs) it's showing off. Yeah, right, (laughs) right. So though A Bug's Life wasn't as universally praised as Toy Story, it is now certainly considered one of Pixar's weaker films but it was a critical and financial success at the time It included some amazing technological advancements. And ultimately it assuaged Pixar's fears of being just a one hit wonder. They were clearly able to like full steam ahead, make all the things they wanted to make at this point. They had proven their worth. It
0: will be really interesting once we make it through more Pixar films to take a retrospective view of all of their films Mm. and Examine why A Bug's Life is one of their weaker ones. And I wonder if that is in part because the merchandising maybe wasn't as successful. Like, do kids want to snuggle with a plush ant the same way they (laughs) want to snuggle with a Woody doll or a plush Mike Wazowski or whatever it
1: is? I bet that is a huge part of it, of just, like, you don't see it as much. Even, you know, in the early 2000s, I think it was quickly being replaced by other Pixar Mm -hmm. films. But, like, I don't think it's as well written as most of the things that are coming up next. So I think I Mm -hmm. agree with, like, the current rankings that do put it towards the bottom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stand up great technologically. Like, it's extremely impressive for the time. Mm -hmm. But like the water effects during the rain is like Mm. not doing so great because they literally had no idea how, like it's not a knock against them, but it can't stand up against the newer things that look so realistic and so polished.
0: Yeah. So the conclusion that I'm coming to then is that story and themes are a lot of what dictate my enjoyment of a film, I think. Sure. Yeah. Because... I'm comparing my viewing experience of A Bug's Life to Toy Story, and Mm. I hated watching Toy Story. (gasps) Yeah, that's true. But of course, Toy Story is held up to this day as a paragon of animation. And of course, it was groundbreaking in that it was the first one. has had three sequels, whereas A Bug's Life has kind
1: of drifted into a bit of obscurity now. So, the thing that comes up when I was reading a lot about Pixar's mission and what their movies should put out into the world and whatever is like this word heart keeps coming up mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like Toy Story had more heart than A Bug's mm-hmm. Life does in my viewing of it. Mm-hmm. Even if, like, I have more of a problem <laughs> with the things that are said and done in Toy Story, it felt more creative like there's just like a little more love in the characters more emotional depth maybe yeah and that maybe simply the performances are really believable and make you attach to the characters more even when they're being bad assholes <laughs> but like <laughs> flick flick doesn't have heart he doesn't make that connection with me the way that mm-hmm. like both buzz and woody do hmm And I think that's really what people end up looking for in the future films is like how much heart there is in The Incredibles, for instance. Everyone loves The Incredibles because of this family. Right. And I feel like that is very different than what A Bug's Life offers, even if the themes are world shattering. If we could all do what the ants in A Bug's Life do. (laughs) Yeah. We should keep note of that and be like, how many positive themes are in this film and how high does Rachel rank it? Right. Mm hmm. Do you want to tell us about that first and most important theme
0: for Rachel? Class revolution.
1: Rise up against your (laughs) oppressor.
0: So I'll start by saying that one way in which A Bug's Life seems to have faded into obscurity, as I mentioned, is that there is so little scholarly writing about this Mm. film in particular I found two peer-reviewed journal articles that were about A Bug's Life specifically and one academic book in which A Bug's Life is featured. Mm. And that was it. There's, of course, a lot of writing in popular media, including some great YouTube videos, one of which will be my recommendation later in this episode. But that was pretty striking to me. And I wonder if that is because it does seem to give a pretty radical political message. Mm. So it feels like there's less to criticize. Huh. And what do academics like to do if not <laughs> criticize popular culture? Oh. So there's one article by Mulder who describes the way in which A Bug's Life can be used as a learning exercise for college and high school courses to help teach about, specifically, Marxism. Aaron, what do you know about Karl Marx?
1: A really, unfortunately, small amount. <laughs> Where people say, like, Marxism, and then they say socialism, and I just kind of shrug. <laughs> Don't really know the difference. <laughs> I know Marx workers, s- socialism the people in general, sharing stuff. Sure. But I don't really know the difference beyond that. Great. Love
0: that. (laughs) So let's start with the basics. Karl Marx was a German philosopher. A lot of his philosophy focused on economics specifically. One of his most famous works is the Communist Manifesto, Mm. in which he critiques capitalism as an economic system and suggests communism as an economic system that would create better conditions for specifically laborers or workers. In the few pieces of academic writing about this film, as well as writing in popular media, there is a lack of agreement about what exactly A Bug's Life is depicting in terms of any specific economic system. But My read of it is that the relationship between the grasshoppers and the ants is one of feudalism Mm -hmm. rather than capitalism because the grasshoppers are not selling the products of the ants' labor for profit. That's what capitalism would involve, but instead they are exerting power over the ants in order to receive their surplus labor in a way that aligns with feudalism right okay the distinction is not particularly important but just worth noting that I don't see this film as a critique of capitalism specifically Mm. and in fact we don't know that the ants don't then move toward a capitalist system once they have vanquished the grasshoppers. The ants could then create a stratified society within themselves and sell their
1: surplus labor for profit. I'd be so amazed if the ants did anything that sounded that intelligent, (laughs) like took that much brain power. (laughs) They seem good at collecting food and then eating the food or maybe giving the food to one other person, but like, I don't know that they're (laughs) going to create a whole hierarchy. They're just going to party with their food and eat it.
0: (laughs) Arguably, they have created a very complex society insofar as there is aristocracy within the ant culture. We have the queen and the princess and the princess's advisors, so I... I could actually see that class stratification mm. happening pretty easily. Mm. Also, did you not see Flick's harvesting machine? Flick's the smart one. Flick's the smart one.
1: That's the point of the movie: is he's the smart one, and all the rest of them are dumb.
0: <laughs> Got it. Okay. 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 Then let's just skip ahead to the next theme because I take it all back. <laughs> Answer. Answer dumb. I, there
1: are Answer <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. There are some members of those, like, advisors who I'd get a little skeevy feeling from. Mm -hmm, They could definitely mm -hmm. start skimming off the top for their own uses. Mm -hmm, All right, mm -hmm. all right. Okay.
0: Okay, so, (laughs) so we have a feudalist system wherein the grasshoppers are exploiting the labor of the ants. Yes. And this is exploitation because, as we see in... The dialogue from Hopper, the grasshoppers don't actually need what they're getting from the ants, mm-hmm. but they want to maintain social control over the ants so that they can retain their place within the social hierarchy as superior. Another Marxist concept that we see exemplified is that of worker alienation. Mm. And this is the idea that Traditional methods of labor, especially ones that are characteristic of the industrial revolution. So, assembly lines and manufacturing, those methods of labor alienate the worker from their own humanity because they're reduced to Mm. doing a tedious task for the sole purpose of earning a wage. Mm -hmm. And Flick is there saying, Hey, I have this great idea that we could do something different. He's exercising his creativity and his agency. Mm -hmm. And then the elites are saying that, no, you're not allowed to do that. You need to stay in line and you need to do what all of the other ants are doing. Mm -hmm. The most exciting piece of Marxism that I think we see is this idea of class revolution. So Flick, in his impassioned speech at the end... Emphasizes that the ants have collective power Mm -hmm. because they outnumber the grasshoppers. This is the observation that Marx makes about the proletariat or the working class and the bourgeoisie or the class of people who in capitalism control the means of production and exploit the labor of the proletariat. So Although, again, this is not a capitalist system, so I don't know that the grasshoppers are a one-to-one representation of the bourgeoisie. The ants definitely represent this working class that, through this film, develop a class consciousness that they do, in fact, have power if they organize collectively, if it's not just one person trying to stand up to the grasshoppers the way Flick initially tries to do, But if they all join together, they do, as Hopper observes, outnumber the grasshoppers 100 to 1 Mm -hmm. and so can exert collective power to end the exploitation that they're experiencing. So this is the type of organizing that we see when workers form unions or Mm -hmm. engage in strikes for their rights against the exploitation of billionaires like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos, (laughs) for example. If an organizing effort succeeds in changing the structure of class relationships, like it seems to in a bug's life, then we have class revolution, which is really cool (laughs) and what we want to do because we want to end exploitation Of laborers, generally.
1: Woo! Yeah! This podcast is explicitly pro-union, everyone. (laughs) Pro-union!
0: Yes, pro-union, pro-worker.
1: Wow, that was cool, thank you. That was super helpful for my brain. Good, you're welcome. I have a question on that note. Awesome. So there's that scene in the very beginning that's played for laughs, but of the line of workers delivering the food and the, the leaf falls in the way, and the workers have no idea what to do. And one of the, like, I don't know, managers, <laughs> mm-hmm. aids to the queen, kind of all rolled into one. He has to, like, lead them carefully around the leaf. But, like, Ada also is terrified of the leaf and that the leaf will, like, ruin their ability to collect the food. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is in training, so I feel like the advisor maybe is still holding a higher position of power than she is. Mm-hmm. But how do you see this this scene relating to the Marxist conversation?
0: Yeah, I think this scene exemplifies the way in which certain members of the proletariat are promoted to be at the managerial level oh. and actually reinforce the will of the bourgeoisie against members of their own class
1: Mm. So Mm
0: -hmm. the managers here are guiding the ants to continue in their labor, guiding them around this obstacle that's fallen, but in doing so are not addressing the authentic concerns of the workers, which are really for their own well-being and their power, but just furthering the goal of creating surplus labor for the grasshoppers.
1: Hmm. And interesting that like they need the manager to lead them around the leaf. And I guess the manager is kind of explaining what he's doing as he goes around the leaf, but it doesn't really seem like he's trying to educate the worker so that they could figure this out on their own next time and not need him. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's like, I will keep you safe and get you to where you need to be So still like holding that Mm -hmm. power structure as it is, not really changing it very much.
0: No. And the idea of middle management is actually a really effective tool at maintaining the social order that keeps the proletariat at a disadvantaged position because – If members of middle management are also members of the proletariat, then they are disincentivized to participate in any class consciousness or collective action, because that then threatens the advantages and power that they've been given by the Mm. bourgeoisie. Right. Right. So if you are in a position of middle management, this is an invitation to take a good hard look at yourself and the way that you may or may not be supporting the liberation of the workers that you supervise. Wow. <laughs> wow.
1: I think we should also mention P.T. Flea yeah. in this moment because we talked mostly about the ants themselves but this relationship also exists with the circus.
0: Absolutely and I didn't Highlight P.T. Flea in my synopsis at all, so it's helpful to say that he is the owner of the circus and the one who is forcing the circus bugs to participate in certain types of circus acts that actually can endanger their well-being, and then fires them when the circus doesn't perform
1: to his expectations. Mm-hmm. He isn't with them in the bar. He doesn't come with them on this whole journey because he's just like. Gotten rid of them and doesn't care about them at all. And then when the circus kind of takes off because of this last, like, accidental fire act that they did, he comes looking for them because now they're worth something to him and can make him money again. Mm. And he also has that line at the very end as they're leaving where he says, I promise to think about paying you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. They're not getting paid. Like, (laughs) they're just performing. To perform at does he feed them? Like I'm not sure they get anything out of this relationship except the joy of performance, which is not enough.
0: (laughs) Right. That would be indentured servitude, I think, is how we might define that in economic terms. And actually, if you want to hear some more about the history of the circus, you could go back and listen to our Dumbo
1: episode. (sighs) Yeah. Wow, that was a long time ago. I know Uh, it really was. Look at us go. But I want to say also, like, based on your reading of the movie and all these Marxist themes, like, I'm kind of sad that the circus just keeps Mm. operating as it does and even, like, recruits more people, like Molt, Hopper's brother, who's, again, another source of comedic relief. He joins the circus at the end after his brother has been murdered. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of ants join the circus. And. PT still sucks, and it doesn't seem like the system has changed at all for that group. Yeah, that's a really good point that I chose to
0: mentally gloss over. (laughs) Perhaps there is a message in there about the essential nature of the arts and artistic Mm. expression Mm -hmm. for tapping into our humanity
1: and something like that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Going back to the original Aesop fable, mm. throwing the arts a bone here at the end. <laughs> That's right. You can dance if you want to. You leave all your friends behind, mm-hmm. but if your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, then they are no, no friends, friends of mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good stuff. <sighs> wow, you want to talk about gender now? I
0: would love to talk about gender. Where do you see feminism showing up in this film? I
1: think in the matriarchal society, yeah. just like compared to what we usually see, we have a queen who doesn't have a king, doesn't have a husband, is ruling on her own, it seems, preparing her daughter to be the next ruler. Mm-hmm. Her daughter also doesn't seem to need to marry to achieve that or anything. Like, she's just going to inherit this. Though that
0: doesn't stop them from shoehorning a heterosexual romance into the plot between Princess Etta and Flick. Yeah. I don't
1: hate their romance because they have some really cute moments. Mm -hmm. Like, so in the abstract, I don't hate that this exists. I just don't think they have any chemistry because I don't think the voice performances are very interesting Mm. or make me endeared to these characters. So like that more bothered me as I'm like, oh, okay, they fall in love now. Sure. I do think Dave Foley's performance is utterly forgettable. His voice is memorable, but maybe only because I've seen this movie so many times. So like when (laughs) I hear him in other things, I do think of Flick. Oh, But I think that's just like first time you hear a voice, that's what you associate it with. Sure. Yeah, but like I think that the monarchy here Mm -hmm. is female-led, which is different. Doesn't mean that monarchies are good. Right. (laughs) That, you know, necessarily they're doing all the right things as rulers. Mm -hmm. So that's number one that I think is okay. I also just love Dot. Oh my gosh, Princess Dot. She is the most feminist character I think here like she needs saving during that scene where the bird is attacking them as they fly across the dry riverbed Mm -hmm. but then she also saves Francis in like that same scene
0: and I do think her needing saving feels to be more the product of her age she is a small Mm -hmm. child rather than the fact that she's a girl
1: yeah and the result of her trying to use her wings and grow and like is courageous mm-hmm. and like she's just not big enough and her wings aren't strong enough yet so she needed some help. <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe not the smartest decision to try that but like I respect her courage. <laughs> Absolutely she keeps the blueberries safe when the grasshoppers come. She's the one who goes and finds Flick and brings him back mm-hmm. f- finally using her wings successfully. Yeah. She stands up to Thumper. At the end, Mm -hmm. I think Dot is smart and strong and cool and, like, wish that she was the main character of the film.
0: (laughs) Yeah. She is very spunky and has a lot of agency
1: in a way that is really fun to watch. In a not-so-feminist moment, just want to also mention that there are only four explicitly female ants (laughs) in a colony of thousands. Mm. And we have this, like... Maybe blue, pink, color binary that's supposed to indicate gender. There are far more male speaking roles. There are only two women in the circus troupe of eight or nine, if you count PT. So, like, overall, I don't think the movie is particularly feminist. Right. But Dot is good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Dot, good. Let's talk a little bit more about
0: Princess Ada. I mentioned earlier that she has some girl boss energy. Yeah, (laughs) in a way that I don't appreciate because I think she is put in this position of power. Her role is to reinforce the existing social structure Mm -hmm. that leads to Flick's alienation as a worker, among other issues. She is sort of villainized in a way because she is Mm. the direct opposition to our hero of Flick, his innovation. And his passion and his desire to do different things. And Princess Ada is the one who has to continually shut that down Mm -hmm. in a way that I found frustrating. But also, to your point, it's because she is in this position of power, which I guess is a good thing. Yeah. But there's something about the dynamics of a woman being villainized because she's shutting down the creativity of her subordinate that I think is really annoying. The other thing that I found annoying about Princess Ada is that she presents as so anxious. And Mm. we come to learn that it's because she is really struggling with imposter syndrome, which is very relatable. And I'm glad that they show that on screen. But why is it a woman who's struggling with imposter syndrome and Flick, who has this <laughs> reservoir of, <laughs> of confidence in his ability to enact <laughs> these out-of-the-box ideas, that gender dynamic just feels very traditional and tired to me. Mm. And it might be cool to see a woman who feels more confident, which I guess the Queen does. So I don't know. There's uh, there's some hits and some misses here.
1: Yeah, the choice of like the kind of growth for Ada is not maybe the most inspiring in the context of the film. Though like agreed. I was like anxious girl, I see you. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it bothered me that like Ada's success, her initial success is a lie. Like she doesn't know it, but it was you know she sent Flick away really just to get rid of him, and it ends up working out. And so the like Queen is proud of her for making you know her own decision for for choosing a thing that seemed totally wild, and it it worked out. And like hooray, look at you becoming such a good leader. But like that wasn't Ada's goal. Ada wasn't actually supporting Flick in his mission. She just wanted to get rid of him. Right. Again, had a very large reaction to Flick knocking over the food. I would have been so pissed if I was Ada. <laughs> like, the society has placed her in this situation, and this guy just totally ruined everything. Mm-hmm. So, I get that. And I blame society a little bit more for Ada's girl bossing than like Ada herself or Ada's personality. Okay.
0: Yeah. That seems fair.
1: She does support flick later as you know it's kind of wrapped up in the romance of course but like she is one of his biggest supporters as he tries to enact his future ideas Mm -hmm. that was good she comes (laughs) around later after being really mad that he lied to her Mm -hmm. I think it makes sense okay but I agree with you that I would rather see their roles reversed Mm -hmm. especially back in like 1998 that would have been really cool it would have been way more interesting Mm mm-hmm I mean, I don't really want either to be a prince. Maybe they're just both women. How about that?
0: (laughs) What? And then there would be a lesbian romance?
1: Amazing. Whoa! In the second Pixar film? (laughs) Can you imagine? Talk about groundbreaking. Wow. Yeah. John Lasseter making a lesbian animated film. Can you imagine? (laughs) I take it all back. I take it all back. Oh, boy. There
0: is also some interesting conversation happening around gender identity in this mm-hmm. film, specifically in the character of Francis, who we haven't mentioned yet, but Francis is a ladybug, but identifies as male. Mm-hmm. Do you read Francis
1: as a trans character? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the filmmakers do Definitely don't. <laughs> right. So I think that that is important to keep in mind. And mm-hmm. depending on the scene, the humor could be taking it any sort of direction. Mm-hmm. I definitely see moments of transphobia if Francis is a trans man. But then there are other times where mm-hmm. Francis is might just be a man who like has more feminine characteristics and instead we're seeing like Mm -hmm. his toxic masculinity as he tries to like reckon with those things within himself as other characters bring up the more feminine aspects of his appearance or his personality and he's not accepting of those things right so like it would be a microaggression if he's a trans man Mm -hmm. or is it internalized toxic masculinity if he just hasn't accepted these parts of himself that aren't traditionally masculine.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. It could totally go either way. And I think because I was enjoying the movie, I was feeling a little bit more generous and was leaning into the idea that Francis was a trans character and that the harassment that he experiences is pretty impactful in that trans people experience that type of harassment all of the time harassment that can lead to incidents of violence that actually endanger their well-being the way that the flies showing up at the bar seems to for Francis so that feels like it could be an important story to tell but also it's all taking place with this cloak of humor around it yes like oh, isn't it funny that a ladybug is actually a guy? And isn't it funny that other people are making mistakes about his gender identity? So that deflates any of the actual positive messaging that might be happening.
1: Yeah. And I think the end of the movie, Francis's kind of final moment, also makes it more complicated because in the... Circus wagon, when Dot comes to get Flick and bring them back and stop the grasshoppers, Flick is feeling like he has ruined everything. Yeah. Everything is all his fault. So the circus members are trying to cheer him up. Mm. Slim mentions that without Flick, Francis would have never gotten in touch with his feminine side. Right. And immediately Francis is like, oh yeah? Well, you know what? He's right. Mm. If it was transphobia all the way throughout, Mm-hmm. He shouldn't have a moment of being like, yeah, I am a girl. Like, no, we don't think that you're detransitioning here. Right. It seems more of like his toxic masculinity has finally started to come apart a little bit and he's accepted these more feminine aspects of himself Mm -hmm. and the way that he was able to be a den mother to the blueberries and really love that role and start to love these little girls So, like, it still feels icky that, like, the feminine side is being applied to a man, and it seems very derivative, Mm -hmm. and, like, we don't have masculine sides and feminine sides, you just have who you are. Right, (laughs) right. I really like your take on it, because I
0: do think it could offer a really interesting commentary on toxic masculinity, one that was sorely lacking in a Toy Story, which just seem to be full of men behaving Mm. badly. So Mm -hmm. if it is a story about a character who is dismantling his own internalized misogyny, that feels like that could be good.
1: Yeah, I like that. I also just want to mention, and we can like transition into femininity potentially if we have more to say there. But the eyelashes, everybody. Oh, wow. The eyelashes. Every female character has eyelashes. Sure do. Plus Francis. Yeah. And I think that is such a in Disney joke almost Mm. that Pixar is making of like we have talked so many times about how eyelashes are the most obvious indicator of gender in Disney films Mm -hmm. so giving Francis these long eyelashes that no other male character has is just like Mm -hmm. immediately setting Francis up for this joke like we know where this is going from the first time we see him yeah totally so on top of the eyelashes. Just want to bring up all the ways that we can tell characters are women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gypsy, the moth, which we can also talk about, has high heels as feet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. The Black Widow character has lipstick and eyeshadow on Mm -hmm. as well. And then like the sort of eyeshadow on Ada, and again, back to the pink blue binary among the... Ants were like the female ants are pink most of the time. I think all of them. There's only four of them who get to speak. So I'm not sure about the other thousand in the background. So when you say pink,
0: do you mean purple?
1: Maybe in contrast to blue? Yeah. It feels more pink and blue because of the very obvious binary association. If I didn't have that context, I'm yeah, I might call the queen and add a purple. Oof. All right. Ooh, another. Ooh. Ooh, so exciting. Toxic masculinity. Ooh. I just wanted to acknowledge the way that I feel about Hopper's treatment of Dot and the Queen. Mm hmm. Because it's super creepy. Yep. Particularly the way when the grasshoppers first arrive at the ant colony, he does a lot of like leaning over. I think it's over Ada. It might be over the queen. He uses his antenna yeah, on her face. <laughs> yeah. Gross. He picks up Dot by her head and just like palms her like a basketball mm-hmm. and carries her around. The minute that happened, like I had flashbacks to being really uncomfortable with that as a child. Wow. Which I did not. Re- I could not have told you about before watching the film. Yeah. So that was really interesting to me. And I don't think it's Kevin Spacey is Hopper and I'm reading onto this character like this gross sexual energy. Okay. I do think it was something that made me really uncomfortable as a child as well. And I think fits into that power structure, toxic masculinity. We can do whatever we want to you. Mm -hmm. And then he like threatens to smush the queen. Mm -hmm. Like that's how he's going to kill her, apparently, which is a very vivid image. He puts his foot on top of Flick at the end, mm-hmm. and so you can kind of imagine what that would have looked like. It it feels so... <laughs> it's just gross. It's really <laughs> gross to me and made me really uncomfortable.
0: It's a really vivid example of the way that men sometimes act entitled to women's bodies. Yes. Yeah. Good words. Yes, Rachel, those mm, things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, that feels really icky. Of course. So talk to me about racism.
1: Well, we can start quickly with Gypsy because I just mentioned right. that character. The moth is named Gypsy after the original common name of the moth type, a Gypsy moth that supposedly that character is based on. As we've talked about in our Hunchback episode. Mm-hmm gypsy is a slur. It's harmful to the Romani people. The moth's common name has since been changed to the spongy moth because of this. So that was one that I just wanted to mention. You also said how the grasshoppers are on their vacation in Mexico, Mm -hmm. which I thought was like weird and like felt a little out of place in like the environments that we'd been in so far hmm. but then when i was doing my research i read that artist bud lucky suggested this hideout for the grasshoppers because quote bad guys are always south of the border oh yikes
0: mm-hmm. now that you bring that up it's not a favorable depiction of mexico They're shown in a resort-type setting, but the swimming pool, quote-unquote, has, (gasps) like, oil sheen on it, Mm. and it looks kind of run down. Yeah. It's Tijuana-type vibes, which has all of these negative connotations. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Additionally, another thing you wouldn't know unless you had looked it up, some of the filmmakers had this backstory for the straw hat that they're (laughs) underneath, that they imagined this place as where this mosquito family lives and then for like six months out of the year, these grasshoppers show up and force them to like feed them and they drink all their stuff and they take over their house before they like leave to go wherever they leave after they get the food from the ants. Whoa! So just further making them these thugs or something, they're Saying are south of the border, so from Mexico. Gotcha. If we are then viewing
0: the grasshoppers as Mexican because they are these thugs south of the border, that just feeds into the cultural stereotyping of Latinx people as criminals or people who are going to come into the United States and somehow oppress Americans or something like that. Is that kind of like what you're saying? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that like, obviously the bad guys are from south of the border. Obviously the criminals are only from south of the border. We have no criminals this side of the border. Like, right. yeah, just choosing to really buy into all of those stereotypes and put that in their film for no reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about regarding racism is Manny, who's the praying mantis in the circus troupe, his disappearing act that he does mm-hmm. which his introduction to this act is from the most mysterious regions of uncharted Asia I give you the Chinese cabinet of metamorphosis yeah that's pretty bad, that's
0: pretty bad. <laughs> uh, especially because he's not Chinese as far as we know
1: yeah I mean the actor is a white British guy <laughs> I don't know much about praying mantises. Maybe there's a Chinese praying mantis, and he is drawn that way, but it feels unlikely. <laughs> right, <laughs> mysterious and uncharted Asia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uncharted by who? What are you talking about? Right, <laughs> the Chinese cabinet of metamorphosis. Not just the cat. Like it has to be more exotic mm-hmm. and you know all of these words are adding to like this is not just a normal cabinet i'm gonna use the exoticization of asia to get that across to my viewers right and he also puts on a turban yep and he says at one point quote i call upon the ancient Sichuan spirits to inhabit the body of our volunteer what is that What's what happening? does that mean yeah You they just thought it was a fun
0: word well, they just had the whole Szechuan sauce for Mulan, so yeah. mm-hmm. maybe that was fresh <laughs> in their memories and on their palates.
1: Perhaps it
0: seems intentional too that Manny and Gypsy are a couple because they're mm. embodying this exotic, yeah, performance and really exploiting that culture for the entertainment of white Western audiences. Yep. So yeah, that feels pretty bad. The next theme was the one that bothered me the most mm. because it was so blatant, and that is the depiction of fatness. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's only one character
1: in the whole movie who's really depicted as fat. I would say kind of two. I think Mole is fatter than every other grasshopper.
0: Well, that just doubles down on the point that I was about to make, which is that the fat character is used for comic relief. Yep. So that's actually the case with both Heimlich and Molt. Yes. And it is relentless, especially for Heimlich. Mm -hmm. Everything about his character seems to relate around his size, and his love of food. Yep. So he's entirely reduced to that single characteristic. And his body size actually endangers his life at one point in the film. Yes. That is so consistent with the messaging that fat people receive all of the time from the medical establishment, from other people, especially thin people, that being fat is somehow dangerous or unhealthy. And here we see on screen a fat character being endangered because of the size and shape of his body.
1: Even the fact that Heimlich accepts himself yeah. is made funny. So like the the classic scene that people quote, I think, is Heimlich at the end. He's been in a cocoon for some period of time and emerges with wings Mm -hmm. and he says I'm a beautiful butterfly Mm -hmm. and like he's so freaking excited like he loves his wings he's very happy with himself right but the wings are too small quote-unquote because he can't fly with them because he is too heavy yeah and his friends have to carry him away from the colony and it's supposed to be so ridiculous that you would think you're a beautiful butterfly because you're clearly not right and it's just so mean yeah it really is i think it's also worth mentioning that his name is heimlich i assume named after henry heimlich american surgeon of german descent who came up with the heimlich maneuver Mm -hmm. which is Usually choking when you have, like, eaten too much too fast. Mm -hmm. They just named him an issue that he might have because he is fat. Like, you're right. Everything about him is totally reduced to his fatness. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Hate it. And then Molt is the comedic relief among the grasshoppers. He is also fat. Has... Ideas that are bad, he's the one you're laughing at the whole time. I, I mentioned earlier how he like joins the circus after his brother dies, yeah, <laughs> so like <laughs> not even giving him any humanity there that he might care about what happened to Hopper. yeah, similar deal. He doesn't eat as much, so I guess that's different <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, <sighs> yeah, oh, we have one more theme to talk about. Got to talk about. Thumper, I assume, will be the main subject of our mental health slash madness section. Yes, yes. I think it will be. Tell us a little bit more about
0: Thumper, the character, since he haunts your nightmares.
1: (laughs) He does. He's so scary. And I like feel bad because he just needs help. Yeah. He's one of the grasshoppers, but he is like their attack dog. That's how they use him. He has this kind of rabid sense about him he doesn't speak he just like screams and growls he jumps all over the place and like moves really rapidly clearly meant to look violent Mm -hmm. like he would attack the ants he looks thinner like he's a what more white than as the others are like kind of this yellowish beige Mm -hmm. and he mostly terrorizes Dot they have kind of an antagonistic relationship throughout the film like that's his main purpose and in one particularly telling moment when the grasshoppers return for their food the second time around, Thumper is on a leash yeah. being held by Molt as if they need to like
0: restrain him, control
1: him, yeah, restrain him, hold him back, and then hypothetically release him mm-hmm. onto these ants. Like he is a tool. He's not a person. Right. The way these other grasshoppers are.
0: Right. There's not really a lot of backstory that we get on Thumper about why he is the way he is, but it would be really easy to project the specter of mental illness or disease onto him and assume that he is violent because of some mental health issue. And so then we create this conflation between... People who have mental health difficulties and violence, unpredictability, and danger. When, in fact, we know that people who have mental illness are much more likely to be victimized than they are to victimize other people.
1: Yeah. And it seems like his place within the Grasshopper Society, they have just... Reasserted that he is different That he is violent Mm -hmm. They lean into these Characteristics Rather than embracing him As a a fellow member of their colony Or treating him like a person Right They've decided that he is just an attack dog Yeah And then like when Dot does stand up to him At the end Mm -hmm. She has dim roar Behind her Which like scares Thumper away and he does this like little dog yip to like further make him feel like a pet Mm -hmm. there's something more to Thumper like Thumper can be afraid Mm. it just made me really sad watching it this time which I never would have noticed I think as a kid but like Thumper just seems like he is probably terrified and abused Yeah, he also makes me extremely uncomfortable both because he's scary and because I can see that this is really a demonization of how mentally unwell people are treated in a society that doesn't want to care for them. Yeah. I think it's
0: also worth mentioning the character of Dim, who Mm -hmm. is called Dim because he's presumably not bright, as in Mm. he is stupid or has a low IQ. And that seems like another stereotype that we see showing up in these movies it reminded me of the character of Einstein in Oliver and Company who is the great Dane who is actually he's called Einstein ironically because he's actually really silly to the point you made earlier in the episode about how there are so many characters in this movie why did they need another character whose whole existence is just a joke yeah, they probably didn't.
1: You can cut a lot of characters from this and not lose pretty much any story. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Dim is is kind of similar to Thumper in a way. Yeah. Not in necessarily a mental health way, but like, why doesn't Dim talk? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just weird that like Thumper, Dim, and even the queen's aphid. Mm. I don't know. It just felt weird that like, you've just decided these three Insects are pets, and I don't know why you've made that distinction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the the aphid because that is such a clear nod to Queen Elizabeth's corgis in the British monarchy. Oh. <laughs> and just want to shout out that the British monarchy is not a great institution, so... <laughs> I don't love the association there if we're supposed to be rooting for the ants in this story Mm. because no one's oppressed the British monarchy. They're the
1: oppressors. That's a good point, yeah. Aphid revolution.
0: That's right. (laughs) Rise up, corgis. We stand with you.
1: (laughs) Okay, I think it's time for some Aaron's Extras. Aaron's Extras. Awesome. Uh, Bug's Life was the first home video release to be created and distributed using digital technology all the way through. Whoa. Which is cool. Traditionally, and even for Toy Story, the VHS or Laserdisc was created by transferring the analog video to videotape or Laserdisc. So they worked from, like, the released theatrical version. Hmm. For A Bug's Life, the film was put on DVD in its original widescreen cinemascope format. So they transferred it directly from digital. Cool. Which is cool. They'd never been able to do that before. Um, and A Bug's Life came out on DVD before Toy Story, which is why it happened for A Bug's Life first. Hmm. But the VHS, I find it even more interesting because it's full screen, like on a... TV from the 90s. <laughs> and they went through the entire film and reframed it digitally. Wow. So, like, normally films would use a, a process called pan and scan, which is where basically, like, you place, like, a a square box over the widescreen theatrical release and they like move it to follow the action. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would edit it to like make sure characters are close enough together. Like we talked about this a little bit with Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty, Mm -hmm. but basically you would just lose the sides of the screen Mm -hmm. or if they chose to release it in widescreen, they would do a process called letterboxing, which we still see where like they put the black boxes on the top or on the sides to make it, the square shape mm-hmm. so you still see everything you would see in the theaters but you would have those obnoxious black bars right. on the top and bottom which is really hard when you're on like a small TV in the first place mm-hmm. it's very hard to see all the detail so for the VHS for A Bug's Life they went back into like the digital version and like moved characters closer together Whoa. or edited the actual frames where they weren't getting like a a joke in the background would have been cut out. They just like moved it over. Or if they wanted the entire widescreen image, they added in the stuff that wasn't in the theatrical release that's like above and below so that it would form like the square or the like five, three aspect ratio. Like they went in and added stuff at the top and stuff at the bottom that would have been in that scene. That's a ton of work. I'm impressed. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And they were so happy with it because it was the first time the filmmakers could see the film exactly they want the way they wanted to yeah. see it on TV. Wow. Which is super cool. That is cool. And then like DVDs became pretty widespread very quickly. And this was totally unnecessary by the time they released Toy Story 2 because most people were not going to buy the DVD. Mm-hmm. Or it wasn't worth it to do all the effort when it was already widely available in its widescreen format. Mm-hmm. So this is like the only movie where that was done. Wow. Did you catch the Pizza Planet truck? I did.
0: It's outside the mobile home when Flick goes on his adventure. Yeah,
1: it's right by the circus tent slash umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. So that started the tradition of the Pizza Planet truck from Toy Story being hidden in every Pixar film. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you every time now. Make sure you see it. My <laughs> eyes are open. I'm ready. Did you also catch the reference on the circus wagon? Is it Casey Jr.? Yeah, but you just guessed.
0: <laughs> I
1: visualized it in
0: my mind and thought about it and I said, yes, I know. And it is Casey
1: Jr. <laughs> yeah, it is Casey Jr. Yeah. So a reference to Casey Jr., the train from Dumbo. It's a, a cookies box that is called Casey Jr. Cookies. Very cute. Did you notice that like Hopper's shell kind of looks like a motorcycle jacket <laughs> or like vest? <gasps> no. Because that I don't think that's how they were originally drawn. Like they were giving the grasshoppers leather jackets <laughs> to like make the biker gang reference like more obvious. Okay. And it eventually, like, they got rid of the jacket, but his like carapace is thicker and looks kind of like a jacket to like reference that imagery of the biker gang stanton and lassiter voice the two flies near the bug zapper Ugh. stanton says no harry no don't look at the light <laughs> and then lassiter says i can't help it it's so beautiful Get gets zapped <laughs> <laughs> it's very good uh, and as far as I can tell, this was the first animated film to include bloopers in the credits. Lots of reviewers thought they were fabulous and yeah. new bloopers were actually added to the theatrical release after a couple weeks to encourage people to come back and see it again. Oh, wow. They were great. The idea that they animated bloopers I know. Like blows my mind. It's pretty like, that's good. That's so much work and they're very funny. Yeah. Great. It's <laughs> a good bit for sure. For sound effects, I found some kind of cool stuff about what they used. So like the grasshoppers walking sound was made by cracking crabs and bending plastic bendy straws. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Foley artists are so creative. Yeah. I don't know how people think of that. That's so cool. They were saying that like cracking crabs is such a inefficient way to do it because like they had to get it right or they would like run out of crab right, <laughs> shells <yeah>. to use. <laughs> so they were like that was not a great choice but it sounded so good. <laughs> Hopper's antennae are fingernails on a blackboard. Oh. we like just like little scritches not like the long sure. terrifying noise but like that's how they made his little twitches. Well no wonder it's such an icky scene. True and then the various wing flaps of all sorts of creatures were made by Different things. So they used like recorded audio of uh, World War II planes, dragonfly wings, hummingbirds, uh, a Huey helicopter, mm. and then bubble wrap being like slapped together. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And lastly, I want to talk about Jerry's game. Mm, yeah. Because it was pretty important to Pixar at this particular moment. So despite that Pixar had not made a short film since Knickknack in 1989. Ed Catmull wanted to test out their advances in subdivision surfaces, which is where, like, if you imagine a cube and then you divide the faces of the cube into squares, and then, like, each of the vertices of the squares you can, like, move in and out to make it more round or Mm. more rigid. Mm -hmm. Like, that's subdivision surfaces. So, like taking a circular head and being able to pull out the vertices to make like the nose and indent for the f- eyes, that kind of stuff. So they wanted to work on that because they wanted to make people. <laughs> yeah. And then they also wanted to work on subsurface scattering more. So he asked Jan Pinkava to make a short film to do all of that stuff. Catmill told Jan that his short had to star a human. So Pinkava took inspiration from his Czech roots and European puppetry and developed jerry's game the subsurface scattering helped jerry look more realistic than any prior human pixar had animated so his skin looked more natural and they worked a ton on the clothing but it was still really hard to animate a human so pinkava came up with a story that only had one character in it yeah she's fabulous <laughs> right oh yeah jerry's game is so good I had better memories of that, I think, than even A Bug's Life when I was right. thinking about watching this. Like, I loved that short. It's so <laughs> iconic. Yeah. There's one great story from Pinkava about the time while he was making this where Steve Job stopped by one day while Pinkava's working on Jerry's jacket. And the team was finally figuring out how to, like, make clothing move and look realistic and nice. But they hadn't tailored it correctly so it was like weirdly floppy and the sleeves were not like they made the top and the bottom of the sleeves the same length mm. when like the bottom should be shorter when the arm is down like all that kind of mm. stuff so he was relaying this to steve jobs and steve jobs said so you need a tailor i know a tailor <laughs> and he offered to call giorgio armani <gasps> what oh my gosh. so picava could like have a consultation with Armani about how to tailor a, a man's jacket. Uh, Pink Kava turned him down and regrets it to this day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. Mm. Rich people, huh?
0: I know, right? Those are my extras. They were wonderful. Tinks. Okay, so I'm very curious to hear what grade you are. Will assign this film based on 1998 audiences.
1: It did remarkably well financially. I think right, especially compared to like the Disney films of the same couple years. And overall, critics were very complimentary. Like saw what it was doing, thought it was good. A couple people obviously thought that it was trying a little too hard, hmm. but it did well. I think it just didn't do quite as well as Toy Story. And I gave Toy Story an A, so I'm just going to give this an A minus. Okay. What do you think for 2023? Woo, 2023.
0: I am also going to give it an A minus. Wow. Rachel loves class revolution. I love it. (laughs) I love it so much.
1: Cool. Awesome. Well, I want to hear about this YouTube video that you're going to recommend. Yeah.
0: So I found a YouTube video entitled Ants versus a Bug's Life. Who loves capitalism more? (laughs) And this video is from Wisecrack, which makes a lot of videos and podcasts and things. So I just discovered them this morning. So this is a fresh recommendation. But in addition to watching the video I just mentioned, they also have a two-part video essay on Disney adults and (laughs) whether Disney is a religion. (gasps) which I found really interesting. So give them a whirl if you enjoy video essays like that. And I'll be linking to that in our bibliography.
1: Cool beans. Rachel, we're going to watch Tarzan next. We're going to watch Tarzan. I think it might be a
0: contentious conversation, (gasps) but we'll find out next episode.
1: I'm so excited. Are you excited, listener? (laughs)
0: I hope you are. <laughs> Email us and let us know all about your excitement or your dread or whatever else you're feeling at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com.
1: And give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at decondisney and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Tata for now. <laughs>